A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies, it's another fine mess for Laurel and Hardy in the affectionate comedy tribute Stan and Ollie. I'm never getting married again. I'm just going to find a woman I don't like and buy her a house. Ah, That's a good one. Keira Knightley stars in the rhapsodic bohemian biopic Colette. I believe Willie based Claudine in part on your school days. Yes, I think I had a little something to contribute. And in Film Club, Steve Coogan is the unlikely music mogul Tony Wilson in the Manchester music epic 24-Hour Party People. The smaller the attendance, the bigger the history. There were 12 people at the Last Supper, half a dozen at Kitty Hawk, Archimedes was on his own in the bath. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies. Hey, welcome, hey. David, and welcome back, Simran Hans, a film critic for The Observer. Hello. Good morning. Well, we're recording this in the morning of the BAFTA nominations being announced. An annual early morning for the British film industry, and even earlier morning for the American film industry. Do we have any big snubs, big reactions to the BAFTA nominations so far? Well, the best film list is is quite weird, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking. It's the favourite, Green Book, Mm -hmm. Black Klansman, um, Roma, Roma and Star is Born, Born, Mm -hmm. which it seems sort of odd to me. What's missing from that, do you think? Not what's missing, but what shouldn't be there (laughs) is perhaps the correct question. Why is is Green Book there? And Mm -hmm. what does it mean for the Oscars? It seems to be becoming one of the favourites, isn't it, in in this conversation this year after the Golden Globes over the weekend. Yeah, I suppose so. But I'm reminded of um, a, a tweet that uh, a friend of the pod, Charlie Lyon, tweeted about this, and I still think it's funny. I only have one thing to say about the Oscars, and it's actually about the BAFTAs, all caps. If a British film wins Best Film, then by definition, it should also win Best British Film. Exactly. So, Does, does it ever happen that way? No. <laughs> but I guess the big snub is, is Lynn Ramsey for You Were Never Really Here, which is nominated for Best British Film, but... But you know, not, not best film. Not best film. I'm really sad that one of my favourite films of last year, Leave No Trace, isn't on on in the mix mm-hmm. either. For the film, Can You Ever Forgive Me as well. It's got lots of nods for acting for for Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. Deserved, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think Marielle Heller's direction is great, and I don't know, she's just not been in the conversation as much as she should have been, I think. It's up but. for adapted screenplay as well. Mm. As, as usual, it's the performance categories and screenplay categories that seem to have some more in, interesting nominations. You know, if, if Beale Street Could Talk is adapted screenplay nominated. Although Regina King has been snubbed from Best Supporting mm. Actress. Which so. is very sad. We'll get onto it today, but there's lots of... Uh, people still love impersonations, eh? 
as opposed to actually building a character from from scratch. But uh, scratch made, as they say in the, the food industry, I believe. Well, they certainly do in America. Yes. Actually, I'm not going to even follow that one through. <laughs> well, what we will follow through is this impersonations bit because of the best British film, of the best actor, Stan and Ollie, including Steve Coogan playing uh, Stan Laurel. Uh, well, what do we think of that? We'll see momentarily, won't we? Yes. Any final comments on the BAFTAs before we do? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great that Into the Spider-Verse is up for best animated film and Shoplifters is up for best foreign language film. They're my two picks, I'd probably I'd say. I'm obviously pleased that Roma, I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. Roma and I'm obviously pleased to see that it's kind of dotted around everywhere. Mm-hmm. So. I will still be standing A Star Is Born and, ah. uh, you know, crossing my fingers for all of those people. I thought you were standing for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. No, I'm not. And I'm actually, you know, not very happy about it being nominated for Best British Film with Brian Singer, you know, listed in, in the, the mm. brackets next to the nomination. It's not really a very good look. Perhaps not. But let's crack on with what seems to be a bit of a Steve Coogan special. First up, we have our first new release of the week, which is Stan and Ollie. Steve Coogan and John C. Riley play the legendary comic duo in this biopic, which focuses on the pair's late career touring the music halls of Britain in the 1950s in defiance of popular tastes and the industry changing around them. Can they scale the heights of humour that they did in their 1930s heyday? They'd have to put aside certain long-simmering squabbles first, some dating back decades, such as a dispute over contracts and pay with the producer that made them in stars, Hal Roach. We should ask for a little more money. A little more? You kidding? Charlie Buster Harold to get ten times what Hal pays us. Well, they own their own pictures. Exactly. That's what we're going to do. Now, how are we going to do that? We're under contract. We can't just change the terms. Well, we stick together. We renegotiate with Hal. Get a bigger slice of the pie. If that doesn't work, then we walk and set up on our own. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to own our pictures, but it just doesn't seem like the right time. I've got a lot going on. This overhead is killing me. Hi, babe. Hello, Boyle. Hey, guys. You want it on set? Ah. You'll be fine, babe. Just lay off the horses and don't get married again. Oh, I didn't tell you. I proposed to Lucille. Scripty Lucille? Yes. Damn. And she said yes. Oh, that's great news, babe. So Steve Coogan and John C. Riley there. This is Stan and Ollie. So David, you wrote Little White Lies Review. Uh, here's a quote. I'm going to quote you to yourself. The film's greatest failing is that it makes you question whether Laurel and Hardy were funny in the first place. Wow, big words to start with. <laughs> wow, do, should, do I need to say any more? <laughs> but are, are you a Lauren Hardy fan in general? Was this something you were excited about? Without getting all like nostalgic and sort of trying to and reflecting my very advanced age, um, mm-hmm. I have very fond memories of, from my childhood of waking up, you know, on the Christmas holidays and putting on TV, and, and there'd always be like a Lauren Hardy film on. I'd love watching them as a you know six, seven year old. Mm. My late grandfather was massively into them, and when we'd go around to his house, you know, as a way to kind of pacify us, he would put films like Way Out West and The Music Box on for us to watch. And, you know, they are films that have kind of grown... I've not grown up with, but they're definitely... I have a sort of fond place in, you know, the archives of my memory, and and, uh, I have less uh, recall of the sort of details of the film than I do of myself and my brother like crying with laughter and falling off the sofa watching them. There's a bit in Way Out West where like Stan pulls Ollie's head up from some floorboards and his neck stretches in this kind of very sort of crunky early special effect and it is absolutely, it's just like 
just thinking about it now, if I wasn't so ill, I would be like, you know, embarrassing myself laughing now. But like, this film is kind of, it sort of takes this sort of very sort of maudlin, soppy, sentimental route of trying to look at a period in their life where they were kind of past their best. Their kind of chemistry was a little bit kind of unconcentrated, I guess. And uh, and in the centre, you've just got Steve Coogan as, as Stan Laurel and uh, John C. Riley as Oliver Hardy. Um, I didn't really buy their performances. They're just mm. they're, they're both very sort of studied imitations. Coogan more so, which is strange because he has been nominated for a BAFTA. I've found his performance supremely irritating and uh, and very sort of try hard. It was a film that it felt like they'd fed the command win BAFTA into a filmmaking computer program, and this is the sort of the product that's come out. Um, it's got that sort of very soft edge, soft focus feel to it, and it just left me limp. Mm-hmm. It's funny because it's it has a couple of threads throughout it that almost feel like it could be an episode of You Must Remember This, the, the Golden Age of Hollywood podcast where it talks about contract players and how Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton owned their own films and material so they could shop around, they could make a lot of money, they could retain the rights and have a pension for the later life. Laurel and Hardy didn't have that, they were contract guys, they were nothing without each other, without the contract with Hal Roach. And then later on, the fact that they were still doing this into their 60s at music halls for, to dwindling audiences to begin with, you know, shows that there was no safety net, even though he could be a household name throughout the world. But it, it is this odd the sentimental film, I, I, tone. I, I, I almost wish the film was more interested in mm. that. Instead, you, you have a kind of manager figure who's this very comic Machiavellian stereotype of chiseling them out of pennies mm-hmm. and you know running rings around them and yeah it's just it, it, that character for me was like could have made the film so much more interesting if, mm-hmm. if it was actually a, a real proper character rather than just this very lazy kind of comic relief almost Sim, how did you find this entertaining, lazy, interesting, anything? Well, I actually quite like the film. Okay. I think I'm in a minority on this one because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm surprised that, you know, most people do like the film. So. I don't have a particular kind of relationship to Laurel and Hardy. My grandma really liked it, so I kind of remember sometimes watching those films on TV when we would go to her house with my cousins. But, I mean, I don't have a a particular nostalgia for it, so perhaps my entry point is slightly different. And I guess I didn't really know too much about their lives. And also, like I should add, this is exactly not my kind of movie. Mm. I don't really care about these sort of period drama, factory-style biopics. So... Everything was sort of teed up for me to hate it. And, you know, I went to see it this week and actually I I thought it kind of worked, you know, for what it is, for what it's trying to do. Yes, I guess you could say it's somewhat sentimental, but for me, the gentleness of it kind of worked. I didn't think the performances were limp. I actually think Coogan is all right in this. There's like an earnestness to the performance that, depending on, you know, your take on it, could grate or could, you know, make you feel endeared towards him. It's. I think you've hit the nail on the head earnest. with the word earnest there. I mean, this this is earnest to a T. Yeah, and, and for me, like, I guess it becomes an impersonation when you have the scenes of John C. Riley and Steve Coogan on stage recreating the the Laurel and Hardy comedy bits. And sometimes they don't really work. Sometimes they actually illustrate how 
beautifully simple and perfect these sight gags were and, and they are still funny but I know what you mean it, you can kind of look for the ticks and, mm. and try to kind of see it as, as an impersonation and of course it will never really be more than an impersonation but in the, the kind of behind the scenes stuff of them fighting and bickering it worked more for me I wouldn't sort of say I loved it I'm not sure it's convinced me that, you know, this genre is for me. But yeah, for what it was, I I think it's it's cute. It's fun. It's I think going back to the quote I said about, you know, makes you question whether the film's funny in the first place. There is a skit in the film that they, they do, which involves them kind of walking around a train platform. It's and a two-door routine. And it's a, two, it's a sort of two-door routine. They keep missing each other. Mm-hmm. And as one's going in one door, they, the other's coming out the other door. And... When you see Laurel and Hardy do it, it's the mannerisms of them walking and it's the kind of nuance in their face and it's like the little kind of double steps they take and the supreme comic timing and the sort of synchronicity that makes that funny rather than the actual Mm -hmm. concept itself. And I guess it's as well, like, to sort of build on that, it's the over-explaining of, of the gags that may provide context for some people but may be distancing for others. These are sight gags, right? Like, they play out without dialogue. The setup, the physical setup is funny. And when you have them kind of working out the kinks of the jokes, I guess it's like anyone explaining a joke, mm. you know, sometimes. That is it. It's, it's a film which is explaining jokes. Maybe it was a kind of an expectation thing, but, you know, you see a film about Stan and Ollie and you, you expect it to be funny. I mean, mm-hmm. they are like two of the funniest people in the, mo- the history of modern art. And for me, it was a flat line. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, you know, I, I mean, just seeing him doing the dance to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. <laughs> again, it's a, it's, a, it's a karaoke version, you yeah. know. <laughs> and and, and they, they make the mistake of showing the real footage at the end of the credits exactly. of that dance sequence. And you, you're right, it's a completely different... Kills the film. <laughs> there is there is a, a kind of element of, of the romance between these two characters that I found kind of interesting. You know, in a lot of ways, it's framed as quite an explicit sort of romantic comedy format you have Mm. their huge breakup Mm. um, when they're sort of screaming at each other and then they manage to kind of parlay it into a kind of comedy bit and then you know they have the the makeup scene with them literally sitting in bed together (laughs) I think there's something kind of funny and interesting about that one positive I would say is that the characters who play their wives yeah are really funny it's unexpected I think but delightful that they actually bring an element of humour to the film. Like Shirley Henderson, I think, is just a great actress, massively underused. I think it's rare that she'll be in a film and I I won't think she's great in it, even if the film isn't so great. And uh, Nina Arianda as Ida Laurel, who's got a kind of Russian lilt to to her accent. And their kind of banter with each other and with their respective husbands is the kind of, the sort of, warmth and the comic engine of the film more so than their relationship and the actual comedy that they're doing on stage and the sort of dilemmas that they're facing I think. I watched the film and was, you shouldn't do this, you know, you shouldn't sort of project what a film should be or what you wish it was but I couldn't help thinking I wish this was about them. A film about Laurel and Hardy's wives. I don't know how they feel. Exactly. But it's all about the marketing hook in the end and you know Laurel and Hardy is probably the stronger marketing hook which is a shame. And it's a performance-led film. Once you have Steve Coogan's produced this with his own company, and then once you have John C. Riley saying he'll he'll turn up and be Oliver Hardy and all of this makeup, that's the engine behind mm. the movie. 
Uh, Simran, I'm conscious that you're more positive on this film. Do you have any final comments before we put scores on this? Not really, other than I've just, it's just been making me think, and I, I guess I've been thinking about this as well because Colette could also um, kind of fall into this category. But I've been thinking about prestige films mm. and, you know, what do I expect from them? What do I want from them? What do they need to do to sort of transcend the banality of that genre? I think performance is a big thing. And, and yeah, like I said, the performances in this mostly work. But also just sort of... Um, Basic competency is something that I think is very underrated mm-hmm. and I f- it feels unfair to say this film is competent, but it is. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's all right. It's all right. Let's put some scores <laughs> on it then. So this is In Anticipation, Enjoyment and In Retrospect. David, your scores first, please. I think that your competence, that is a bigger diss than me actively not liking it. <laughs> but it's almost like that kind of theory that two stars is worse than one star Uh because one star is like the kind of the outright horrible failure two star is like you know it's just nothing (laughs) so which is it for you oh so i'm probably like a two star (laughs) (laughs) because you know i did i did think there was sort of some sort of okay elements across the board i'd probably say like three stars to start off with i'm i was very skeptical about you know as you say lauren hardy being given the kind of prestige brit flick treatment when I saw it, it kind of confirmed all my worst fears, really. And yeah, uh, just twos. Steve Coogan's performance was horrible. Let's talk about Steve Coogan we, again we've got more when Coogan we get to, up. to 24 yeah. Hour Party People because, you know, I'll prove to you that I don't just hate Steve Coogan. <laughs> it's just this. Performance. I'll hold you to that. So it's flatlining at a two across the board for you, David. Pretty much. Same round. Dear. Um, I'd say my anticipation for this was probably like a one. I really didn't <laughs> care, I had no expectations. I would say my enjoyment was was maybe sort of three and a half to edging on a four. You know, I think a, a lot of the time your enjoyment of a movie depends on the room. And I think it was quite warmly received in my screening. So maybe that helped. People were laughing a lot. I let out the occasional chuckle. But on balance, I'd probably give it a solid three. Yeah, it's, mm. it's fine. I would say, yeah, watch it. I don't know if I would say watch it twice. Plain movie? No, it's it's better than that. It's better than that. Better than a plane movie. Okay, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, competent, fine. I'd agree with you, David. I think it's uh, two across the board for me. I think Steve Coogan's done better. I think John C. Riley has done better in the past twelve months in The Sisters Brothers. He's fantastic in that movie. That's going to be coming out later this year, isn't he? So, I'd rather watch that again. So that's Stan and Ollie. We'll be back with Steve Coogan later on for Film Club with Twenty Four Hour Party People. But first, we have Kira Knightley in Colette. Kira Knightley is Sidney Gabrielle Collette, a young woman introduced into the cultural circles of late 19th century Paris by her husband, the writer known as Willie, played here by Dominic West. Collette ghostwrites a semi-autobiographical novel that is published under her husband's name, and when it becomes a smash hit, she's inspired to reclaim her work, her voice, and her identity. Madame Willie. An honour. Pleasure to meet you. Listen, Claudine at school is heading for her third printing. Excellent. I believe Willie based Claudine in part on your school days. Yes, I think I had a little something to contribute. Well, I'm very glad your experiences have borne such wonderful fruit. Very nice to meet you, madame. Garde Lyon, please. Where are we going? We'll find out. Something wrong? Well, what, what do you think is wrong? What? 
finally we have a success, and then you imply that I'm not the true author of it. No, I didn't. We're holding dynamite here. We've created something really powerful, and if it goes off at the wrong time, it could blow our bloody heads off. Keira Knightley and Dominic West there. Simran, all of these themes, a woman reclaiming her voice and identity from the man that you know, keeps her in the, in the cupboard, so to speak, couldn't be more timely, could it? Okay. I think the way that the tagline and the marketing of Colette tease it up could maybe set viewers up for a disappointment. I think if they go in expecting it to be this radical sort of rallying feminist call, I don't know if they'll be entirely satisfied. However, if you go into this movie expecting to see Keira Knightley in a prestige drama about a female writer who you don't know too much about but has had quite an interesting life, maybe you might be surprised. Maybe when I watched this on a sort of critic circle screener over Christmas with my parents Mm -hmm. and a very small glass of sherry at 4pm on the day before Christmas Eve, that kind of um, expectationless viewing really made this film work for me. I think Keira Knightley is right in her kind of comfort zone in the period drama. She looks amazing in the outfits. The sleeves in this film are incredible. But I don't know, there was something about her performance that I felt was different to what she's usually Mm. doing. I think Keira Knightley is one of these actors who, like David Tennant, acts entirely with her teeth. It's all in the the jaw. Well, she has got yeah. quite a strong jawline, yeah. hasn't she? Yeah. She has, it, and a lot of the emotion comes from the clenching of the jaw. Mm-hmm. But here, she seems different. She seems more relaxed. She seems more loose. She seems more at ease. I don't know whether that's just her kind of confidence growing as an actor or whether the role is just slightly more interesting than what she's usually given. I think Dominic West is very funny in this role. He could misogynistic sort of awful husband who's stealing all of her ideas and passing them off as his own and yes literally locking her in a cupboard and making her right uh, which is I guess one way to meet your deadline you know I think it's so easy for the film to make him into a caricatured villain but he's he's just kind of witty and funny Mm -hmm. and he's kind of a lovable scamp in a way and (laughs) I don't think that that um that lets him off the hook I don't think the film lets him off the hook but I think it makes their dynamic more interesting to watch for sure again like I went into this film thinking it would probably be bad it'd probably not be my cup of tea but actually I found it quite charming Mm -hmm. so was it your cup of tea David Mm, yeah similar vibes um I was a little bit disappointed with it I mean talking about Keira Knightley her career has been strange and I find that in her kind of early days of like Bend It Like Beckham and Love Actually and things like that, it was sort of thought that she wasn't the greatest actress, you know? Mm. Um, And then there was a point in her career where she just sort of, it almost seemed like, right, I'm not doing the kind of fluff anymore. I'm not doing these kind of easy roles. I'm going to try something a bit more difficult. And um, there was that David Cronenberg film, Dangerous Method. Yes. And I mean, I don't know if you if you recall that, but it's funny you mentioned the jaw thing, but she plays this kind of character who's in the early bits of the film, she's in the throes of like physical madness. And she has this kind of like affliction with her jaw where she's mm-hmm. kind of like almost trying to bite her own face off. <laughs> and I remember seeing that thinking, all right, Keira Knightley is a great actor, you know. And um, ever since, I've I've really thought that she has been a kind of an asset to most of the films she's been in. And uh, I think she's really great in this film as the lead. And I, and, I, and I actually think that 
this is a weird thing actually, but like one of the things that slightly put me off this film was a sense of almost disparity where I thought she was so much better than most other elements in the film. Yeah, I think Dominic West and her, that there is a sort of interesting sort of two-handed dynamic there. But you do have lots of sort of supplementary supporting characters, her friends, his friends, and they're all dealt with in the most superficial mm. way. None of them have much screen time. And None... some of that acting is quite bad as well. Exactly. Um, it's almost what... like that the director, Wash Westmoreland, has you know hurried them onto the set because his focus is supremely on Kira Knightley and Dominic West. And yeah, I, there's I, I, one of their shared lovers is played by Eleanor Tomlinson. I can't remember the the name of the character, but she's doing a kind of deep South accent, mm. which is very confusing. Sometimes it sounds slightly Australian. It's very off to me. I mean, I think this is an example of a film where those are the elements that kind of, if they're good, you you can you can almost go by and not notice them for better and for worse but then if if they don't work and if they do actually make you think mm, these these performances are they seem sort of weaker in you know relative to the leads mm. they, they really sticks out you hit the nail on the head Simran saying this is such a sherry film <laughs> it's sort of like that performance dominated lead performance dominated awardsy movie that we get every, every year or two something like the danish girls something like the imitation game which touches on some pretty interesting major issues this one has sexual and gender fluidity as well as uh, women empowering themselves re- wrestling out from horrible men in their lives but it's almost too soft on every one of those issues. it could be gayer for sure i i would have liked it if it was more gay and mm-hmm. um it, if it had kind of gone into the relationships a little bit more and, and had a bit more audacity with them as well i think it likes to not suggest because it does show us some things uh, so it gives us some sort of idea and understanding of colette's sexuality but it doesn't feel kind of depraved enough but mm-hmm. it's not it's not that kind of movie it's, it's not such, a radical movie at all is it's it? such a kind of like afternoon at the cinema on a sunday w- with the family kind of film with nan although maybe nan would be shocked at oh some, okay i don't right. know i think that's why depends the, the, how radical your nan is radical nan radical nan well i think the danish girl would be a perfect temperature test there because that's the sort of thing that has some pretty radical ideas in but is for that crowd for maybe a, a greater pound of an audience maybe i'm not sure this film is that i'm not, yeah, I'm not so. sure it's as kind of conservative and and kind of withholding as um, something like The Danish Girl. Also, it has the benefit of not starring Eddie Redmayne. You know, it's a sort of Curzon Mayfair film, you Ooh. know. Okay. That's a, a <laughs> reference too far, but let's go back to Sherry. <laughs> I mean, Sherry is... Yeah. Let's pour out the Sherry, but let's finish with uh, some scores on this film first. I'll come to you first, uh, Simran. I would say Anticipation, perhaps a three. I'd heard that it wasn't great, but, um, you know... I went in with an open mind. Enjoyment, I would give it probably a four, and and I'd say on reflection, I'd give it a a four as well. I I quite like this film, actually. David? As I said, I quite like Keira Knightley now, so I'm going to, I'd have given it a three in anticipation. Probably threes across the board, actually. It's not like, I didn't find it offensive. I think it's actually just sort of one, maybe last point in anticipation of a film that's coming up in a couple of weeks, I think, called Mary Queen of Scots. It's potentially part of this of a wave of period movies which are made 
anticipating the kind of progressive politics of now, where you have like these like historical stories engineered to be talking about you know feminism and uh, female empowerment, and it's interesting to see them happening. But sometimes I, I don't know a, a film like Mary Queen of Scots does it in a very contrived way. I think this is a little bit more subtle and and I, interesting. I, I think this is better than than sort of suffragette. You know, I wouldn't put it Suffra- in that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't put it in suffragette. that category. I don't think it's as as kind of paint by the numbers as as that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, I'd give this three across the board. Really, I, I think this ground has been trod better in some of the films. One, a quiet film I passion. Would, a quiet passion. One film I'd recommend was a film that barely got released over here called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, which is gayer, which is more radical, especially about the place of a relationship like that in the society around them. I'd recommend checking that out instead. But. Um, Let's put the sherry to the side. Let's uh, get out of the ecstasy tablets because we're off to Manchester in the 1980s for 24-hour party people. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So 24-Hour Party People is the first collaboration between Steve Coogan and director Michael Winterbottom, and it charts two decades of music history in the northern powerhouse of Manchester, the scene that gave the world Joy Division, New Order, The Happy Mondays, and the notorious Hacienda Nightclub. At the heart of his hall was Factory Records, headed up by Anthony H. Wilson, a punk impresario by night, and a local TV host by day. May the 21st, 1982, the night the Hacienda opened, Everyone wants to play. Bowie, Queen, The Stones. I chose a certain ratio because they were my band. And that was the point of the Hacienda. It was a place for people we knew, people we could trust. I can't believe this. They have solely betrayed us here. What a joke. Oh, I don't know, Rob. You know, it might work. Has there ever been a Withenshaw jazz band? No, there aren't, thank No, let me tell you, like, jazz is the last refuge of the untalented. Jazz musicians enjoy themselves far more than anyone listening to it. It's like theatre. It's what you do when you can't get a gig. Mm. It's one down from celebrity squares. So I'd like to apologise to any A Certain Ratio fans, uh, to listeners out there. The views of 25 Power People do not necessarily reflect the views of this podcast. But what are the views of the listeners, David? Any tweets for 25 Power People? 
So I'm, I'm going to sort of start off with two nice positive ones from Edwin J. Davis. I've always loved its riotous, irreverent take on the music biopic, the fourth wall breaking, having people dispute Wilson Coogan's accounts of events. It all, all of it captures the feeling of the scene and its tensions without being slavish or rote. Mm-hmm. And the hipster Lama says, my directing tutor at uni was second assistant director. He says working on the film was a nightmare, but I will always love it. Really funny, really clever and brilliantly acted. Terrific. Simran? I've got a comment from Mardi Tam. He or she says, I thought this was a massive disappointment. It comes across as some kind of Manchester-themed mass fancy dress party for a generation of Britcom-ish actors. Ralph Little is Peter Hook. John Sim is Bernard Sumner. Paddy Considine is Rob Gretton. And many of the other usual suspects are in there too, of course. Bryden, Peg... Gorman, Circus, each giving a Winterbottom-approved wink to the camera as they go about their role play. Coogan might be very watchable, but he's always Coogan rather than Tony Curtis. Tony Wilson, Tony Tam. Tony Curtis. You were doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, actually, because I think everything Mardi Tam says is why I like the film. <laughs> it's funny. So I've seen this film many times growing up as a teenager in Manchester. Did it, you ever go to the, ma- the Hacienda? Just before my time. Oh. Uh, so th- this film came out in 2002, 2003, five, six years after the Hacienda finally closed, and now has been reopened as flats uh, years oh. later. Um, so I grew up in the more oasis Manchester period. So this was all dewy-eyed nostalgia, um, this period for me. But David and Simran, you're seeing this film for the first time. David, so you say that this mess of a movie is what what you enjoyed about it. Yeah. Watching this film now, I was I had a kind of retroactive sort of bout of melancholia because I was oh. like, why did I skip this movie? I was like, when this came out, I was like going to see everything that came out. I, I was at university and I just had like quite a bit of free time and <laughs> and for some reason I just chose to not go and see this film. I loved Alan Partridge and I think this was when Michael Winterbottom was at, the, you know, he was doing his best work that kind of early noughts period. Mm. Some of his stuff, you know, most of his stuff, you know, he did sort of Tristram Shandy a couple of years later and he'd just done Wonderland, which is like one of my all-time favourite British movies. I was just spent like hours trying to think why why did I not choose to go and see this? And, uh, but it was lovely to catch up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, looping back to what I was saying about Steve Coogan, I mean, I think, whereas I think Stan and Ollie shows the worst of Steve Coogan and his kind of attempt to be a kind of proper actor, this is him, like, you know, I guess asset stripping elements of his kind of comic persona, which work to sort of build these other characters out of them. And, uh, you know, they, yeah, I think it is a kind of Steve Coogan, Tony Wilson hybrid. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all the film is all the better for it because I mean it it basically allows Coogan to relax more in the in the role. I mean you know in, in Stan Nolly is not relaxed. He is kind of like thinking about what he's doing. You can see that. Whereas here he's just like doesn't have to like work too hard to get into character. Mm-hmm. So he can actually remember to be funny and to give all these very you know his sort of wink nods to camera and his little kind of pretentious asides about how you know his his days at Cambridge or all just work wonders I think it really yeah. helps that the film itself doesn't attempt to be a facsimile of this period or of these people it undercuts itself by having these postmodern winks to the camera the fourth wall breaking uh, Tony Wilson himself has a cameo in this movie saying that the performance of Tony Wilson on camera when he's hosting the Wheel of Fortune is over the top and needs to be cut out yeah and, and there's so much of this sort of it's very postmodern isn't it before it was uh, popular there, there's, the there's says, even a, a, a very funny line in, in the movie when he's flirting with uh, Miss Universe mm-hmm. and he's like 
I'm flirting with her. She's aware of it. It's postmodern. It's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, just to be more more grouchy, if that's even possible, oh. I'm generally very down on the genre that we all know and love as the music biopic because it has become this rote picking out like you know people in a studio someone's saying something goes oh hey why don't we write a song about that you know and uh, this is an interesting creative spin on the sort of tired music biopic formula mm-hmm. i mean it's not focusing on one band it's focusing on a on a sort of scene and a character who's you know almost as a prism to to look at this the bands and the music mm-hmm. so you have a perspective on it you know it's not just you know, very cold, subjective. I think you have seven or eight perspectives on it. This is such a film with so many aspects to it. Simran, what's it like watching this film? Did you study in Manchester? Yeah. I, so you have a relationship with the area. I did study in Manchester and uh, I had a kind of vague knowledge of all of this stuff and I, I love a lot of the bands that feature in the film. So it was kind of nice to sort of have that history told to you in a way that's fun and engaging and playful and it is satirical, but I don't think it necessarily works as a straight satire because it's more loving, it's more affectionate. I don't think it's, it's being especially kind of critical, but um, it's winking, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's elbowing in the ribs. And I, I like that kind of... Um, that attitude. Also, there are so many great actors. I'm, I'm kind of with David on this, and, mm-hmm. and sorry, Mardi Tam, but <laughs> you know, all those actors kind of playing those roles is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Ralph when- Little taking the like cigarettes off of Ian Curtis's. He's having an epileptic fit. Writhing body. He's like, yeah. he's got me fags. <laughs> <laughs> that was genius. <laughs> and this film is very funny. I was genuinely cackling throughout, so it made me kind of think about the state of British film at, at the moment and, you know, thinking about could this sort of film get made now and, and how would it land? And I'm not sure something that this kind of risky and funny and weird would kind of mm-hmm. It's interesting, this com- the, the other comment by Hipster Lama about the, the university directing tutor saying it was a, it was a, a nightmare to work on. And, it, you know, it's like... I can imagine it was probably mm-hmm. like... Yeah, I believe of, that. <laughs> you know, all these venues, crowd scenes. It all seems like it was shot on the lamb almost, but, like, yeah. you get that energy from it. Mm-hmm. You get, like, a kind of... There's a snap to it, and it just works so well in There's that something thing. fascinating about this film. Uh, Robbie Muller, the, the cinematographer who died last year, did the cinematography on this film, mm. one of his final credits. People focused so much on his work on Repo Man or with Vim Vendor's Jim Jarmusch in the 80s. And this is him working with digital video in its early nascent you know, phase. And it looks so garish now, in a way. And But as you say, it gives it so much energy. Absolutely, yeah. No, it definitely has a kind of, like video diary kind of vibe to the way it's shot I think mm. and uh, which fits with the sort of essence of the story and the kind of the fact that everything is being done on a wing and a prayer mm-hmm. I'm so glad to hear that you, you both got something from this film because I'm so deep in the rabbit hole of Factory Records and Manchester Music this film came out just the right time when I was 15, 16 just getting into these bands in a, in a hardcore way but there's so much of the DNA of this music still present in the Mancunian spirit and creative scene but 
it was the Rosetta Stone for a whole mm. scene of music for me. Even though now I look back and I think that it's it's too mean on a certain ratio. That's the Withenshaw jazz band you heard in the clip. Vinnie Riley, who's the Geruti column, who in a way is probably one of the most well-respected factory artists, just gets uh, called provocatively poor by uh, Rob Brydon's character and just dismissed. Um, he's a, he's a, just a sad guy with a guitar and on stage. And then he has his cameo that they were like, that actually has been cut out. The original. I'm sure it'll be on the yeah. DVD. Yeah. It's an amazing line considering it's 2002, 2003. So, you know, they're you know, now referencing what, DVD what even our DVDs. That's just yeah. the British way of showing love is when we're mean to things. Mm-hmm. There's this duality to the film. It's everything I love and hate about Manchester and the music and everything I love and hate about Steve Coogan that is in this movie. It's Every time I revisit it, it seems to be slightly different for me. Did either of you see a film, Coogan and Winterbottom, Tried to do another version of this film with um, Paul Raymond. Uh, it's called The Look, the Look of, of Love. Love. It's, oh, God, I think I have seen that. It's, it's basically the kind of... He's a kind of pornographer and uh, and real estate merchant, I think. The King of Soho, I think mm-hmm. he was called. But there was potential there to, to, for it to be another really interesting, lively film. But I think someone somewhere got the kind of prestige tea time claws around it and it just got <laughs> it, it just got sapped of life and, mm-hmm. and it, it had this kind of very more like maudlin story in it and in 24 hours pipe there's you know the way that the ian curtis's suicide is dealt with comically is just it's just it's amazing i mean it's, it's obviously it's very sad but like the, the fact that they're kind of joking about it and it's kind of brutal but actually very fond of i think what helps 24 hour party people in contrast to the look of love which i think wasn't authorized by Soho Estates and the, the Raymond family, they weren't on board. Everybody's on board with 24-hour party people with that sense of humour, with sending themselves up. So everyone is pulling in the right direction for a film like this to be made, and it's very rare for that to happen. The things that are missing from this film, as you say, with the Ian Curtis's suicide, are explored in great black-and-white depth in Control later, the film where it's uh, Sam Riley as, as Ian Curtis instead of Sean Harris, who's a very scary Ian Curtis in this He's film. Terrifying. Definitely is a, a supervillain. Mission Impossible supervillain, maybe. Exactly. I think he's so great in it. It's such a sort of um, slightly more minor role in within the film, but I think he's really funny. But does this make you convinced? We were talking about Stan and Ollie. That's a film where they're performing on stage and you see crowds of laughing audience members. It's trying to convince you of the comic genius. Were you convinced by the genius aspects of this film? Something that's very hard in music biopics. I, I think, think so. I mean, I think that like with the, someone like The Happy Mondays, this is the thing, like, I think Stan and Ollie, it kind of is almost like shaking you by the lapels, telling you, these guys were geniuses. 24-hour party people doesn't do that as much. Or it actually does so in the comic sense in that, you know, Tony Wilson's constantly comparing Sean Ryder to Yeats as, as <laughs> our, one of, like, you know, our greatest poets and that Manchester in the early 90s is the, is the same as, like, Florence during the, like, the Medici era <laughs> or something. And uh, it doesn't spend time trying to sort of like give you that kind of oh it's that idea of the the only way people are going to care about these characters and care about these bands and care about these artists is if they think that they're amazing and you know when happy mondays are running out of meetings to go to like kentucky fried chicken is like that's funnier and cleverer and and more kind of artist that's almost like a kind of you know, Dadaist statement. Than the, You've bought into yeah. the Tony Wilson way of thinking here about yeah, those yeah. Liverpool scamps, the Happy Mondays. So, man, you said you like these bands, this music. Did this enrich that, that feeling for you, knowing the crazy story behind the bands? It kind of made me imagine a kind of um, 
another version of this film about the sort of New York noughties indie scene. Um, Last year I I read a book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is all about a kind of similar scene, but sort of 20 years later or whatever. And uh, yeah, I wondered if maybe if the format could work again. And I think no, probably. I think what's special and and funny and specific about this film is that kind of self-deprecating, very British humour. And I think it sort of almost like sets these things up and the successes of these bands up as a series of happy accidents and, you know, things that sort of worked out that might not have, not to do with with the genius and and the talent, but more with the inadequacy of uh, a lot of the people involved. And uh, I just think that's funnier, Mm -hmm. really. And Tony Wilson is just, you know, he's just a strange, strange character. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's... That's one of the strongest threads of the film. I, th- I think it does become quite muddled as the film goes on in a good way because of all these other threads that come in. But Tony Wilson, this character study of a guy who would be hosting Wheel of Fortune or doing the local news reports by day and then would have a grotty club co-owned by you know the Peter Kay character yeah. uh, by night where he'd be putting on all these bands or he'd be hosting the music show that would champion Susie the Banshees and Sex Pistols and Iggy Pop at a time when they couldn't get on more mainstream channels. There's something really fascinating about Tony Wilson there. You don't have characters like that. There's some divine uh, northern accented swearing in this film, I think, which we can't replicate on microphone. The producer's waving at me through the screen there, but uh, it's worth revisiting. I'd also like to shout out one cameo that revisiting this film really stuck out to me, which was Spider from Coronation Street playing Howard DeVoto having sex with Shirley Henderson in the toilet. Uh, (laughs) Talking about cast members who've had their rise and fall. What's happened to him? Where is he? Spider from (laughs) Corrie. I could talk about 24-hour party people for 24 hours. and uh, You, know, you should. Podcast. Uh, uh, <laughs> the 24-hour party people. The 24-hour, 24-hour party people podcast. That's not a mouthful at all. But uh, thank you for your comments on 24-hour party people. Next week, Film Club is The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan's breakout twisty thriller with Bruce Willis. That's because with the new releases next week, the lead film is Glass. Uh, and Matt Shamalan's uh, return to both the Split and Unbreakable Universes, a crossover film with, uh, with Bruce Willis and James McAvoy. And the second film next week is Beautiful Boy with uh, Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. We'll see how those films pan out next week. Uh, but before we go, uh, I think, David, do you have something to say? I do have a little thing to say. It's that there is a new issue of Little White Lies magazine oh. on the shelves yes. right now. It's just been released a few days ago. So I invite our listeners to go forth and, and pick it up. And it's inspired by an amazing film called If Beale Street Can Talk by Barry Jenkins, the director you might remember who made Moonlight. And I won't say any more than that, that it's just out now and consider picking it up for train journeys, um, quiet evenings, uh, park visits, etc. Whenever you have time spare, something to read. Indeed. Let us know what you think about the magazine or the films we discuss via the usual channels at Truth the Movies on Twitter, lwlives.com slash podcast or Truth the Movies at tcolondon.com. David, thank you for joining me. Simran, thank you for joining me as well. Where can people read your writing every week? You can find me on Twitter as at heavier underscore things or you can Google Simran Hands plus The Guardian and uh, read my reviews there. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for listening. I have, as always, been Michael Leader and this has been a Seven Digital Production.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.